Good morning, everyone. Fine, sunny, long weekend. Welcome to Westview this morning. To those of you tuning in, there I am dating myself again. On, uh, on YouTube, welcome. We pray and, and hope that this morning will be a blessing to all of us uh, together. Uh, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Evang Destunis. I'm uh, an elder here and part of the preaching team. Um, I am going to continue on the series in the book of John that uh, Charlie started us off with last week. But before I do, I just, I just want to give a shout out to the preaching team. Uh, because although I am standing here alone before you, um, the efforts that go into uh, crafting and producing and, and uh, sharing a message is really a team effort. So I'd like to give a shout out in no particular order to the preaching team, which consists of Charlie Salamone, Nita Katuga, Basil Favis, Cheryl Johnson, myself, Chris McCooley, and Andy Smiths. And we spend a lot of time together praying for one another and also giving various insights as we look into the various passages that the Lord is leading us into sharing and preaching on. So this morning, we're going to be talking uh, in John chapter 4. But before we get into this passage, I'd like to talk about water. Wow, Evange, can you come up with more lame of a subject than water? Well, you got me at the edge of my seat. What's, what's so special about water? Well, hang on a second. What I'd like to say is when you think of water, especially if you look, I'd like to continue the, the theme of uh, space exploration that Charlie started us off on last week, looking at black holes uh, in the Milky Way and beyond. But if you look at different space exploration pursuits, whether it's NASA or the European Space Agency, the Russian Federation Space Agency, when they send spaceships up into space and go to different planets or moons of planets, invariably, what is the one thing that they are always looking for? Water. They're always looking. There might be traces of water here. They're looking for water in every planet and in every moon orbiting every planet in our solar system. And why is that? Well, if we look at our planet, our world as an example, wherever you find water, life is in the immediate vicinity, right? It's, it's almost like l water is integral for the existence of water. Liquid water especially is a solvent which dissolves a lot of substances. It enables a lot of chemical reactions to occur in all sorts of cells, be they animal cells, plant cells, microbial cells. So we know that wherever there is water, life is sure to exist. So much so that many scientists would consider the absence of water would probably knock out any possibility of any life existing in other planets, other worlds. So life is, is grounded on the substructure of, of water. It's almost like it's foundational. Now, of course, Jesus takes water and takes it to another level. And that's what we're going to be looking at. When we're looking at water as important for the creation and for the sustaining of life, Jesus brings it to another level. And for that, I'd like us to all turn to John chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be spending this morning in this passage. Um, if you have a, a Bible or if you have a device, open it to John 4. We'll be turning into it uh, shortly. But just in terms of a, a, a background, backdrop, before we get into this passage, where do we find ourselves in the story of Jesus? Well, immediately before this, um, we know that uh, he had turned water into wine in John chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana. Um, then after that, it was the Passover, so he went to Jerusalem. That's when he went into the temple and uh, cleansed the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers. Um, after that, in the evening, Nicodemus came out in John chapter 3, and he met him in the evening. That's where he had the conversation about you must be born again, and the famous John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Then at the end of that, it says Jesus went out to the Judean countryside, and he was baptizing new disciples. And some disciples of John the Baptist had come to, Jesus, to John, and they said, John, it seems like 
the, the one that you say is the Messiah, whom you baptized, is now baptizing more new disciples than you are. And that's where John responded that uh, he is the bridegroom, I'm the fr- friend of the bridegroom, he must increase, I must decrease. And this is where we find ourselves this morning, in John chapter 4. So turn with me to John chapter 4, verse 1, and let's read and see what had happened. And as we go through this passage, I'll be unpacking or, or highlighting certain salient features to what Jesus is doing here. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it wasn't Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So he heard, "Uh uh-oh, my popularity is increasing here. So he goes AWOL. He goes up to Galilee and leaves Judea. Why did he do that? Was Jesus chicken? Was he into conflict avoidance as opposed to conflict resolution? I mean, the Pharisees heard he's gaining popularity. Why did he leave? And here we discover that there was an intentionality to Jesus, that everything he did was measured and taken into account. And for him, in his ministry, he knew that the stir that he was going to cause would be premature if it came to a full head at this point in time. There was work that he had to do, so he left a potentially controversial situation, and he went up to Galilee. Let's read on. Now, he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Why is that? Well, simple geography lesson. If you picture uh, the Middle East at the time, we have the Mediterranean on one side, and going north and south was the Jordan River. Now, sandwiched between those two bodies of water, there was Judea to the south, Galilee to the north, and sandwiched in between Judea and Galilee was Samaria. Now, Samaria had an interesting past. It was frowned upon. Samaritans were frowned upon by the Jewish people. Why is that? Because they were formerly of the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. And as opposed to the Jews who went into exile, they remained in their area. They intermarried with Gentiles. They weren't seen as as pure land Jews, according to the Jewish people. So they, they were always hostile to one another, at enmity with one another. And... So much so that very often, pilgrims traveling to and from Galilee and and Judea would very frequently be attacked by Samaritans. So much so that many times they would detour and go cross over the other side of the Jordan, go east, come down before re-entering Judea via Jericho on into Jerusalem. So they would avoid that area. But here, Jesus says he had to go through Samaria. It was almost like he had, perhaps, a divine appointment. We'll see how this story unfolds. But suffice it to say that there was a certain purpose to Jesus intentionally going up north through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Now, interesting point, the rest of the story takes place by the well. And the well is an interesting scenario because if we look at what had happened historically around wells, it would be the ancient equivalent of a watering hole. Now, there wasn't a singles bar where they served alcohol, but many couples came together at ancient wells. If we look in the past, we know that Moses met his wife Zipporah at a well. We know that Abraham's servant met Isaac's future wife, Rebekah, at a well. Jacob met Rachel at a well. Even Hagar, who was ditched by Abraham and his family, left the family of Abraham and God met her. It says the angel of the Lord met her at a well. So it's interesting that a lot of incredibly uh, interesting scenarios take place at wells, it seems like. So Jesus is here by the well, and look what happens. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food, implying, therefore, that 
if the disciples were there, they, he would probably would have asked them to give him water. But seeing that as he was alone with the woman, he asked her for a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Let's stop right there. If we engage in this, what's wrong with this picture, we pick up three major points from this interaction that takes place here. The first thing is, we know that Jesus was an itinerant rabbi. He was considered a holy man. And at the time, holy men did not speak or associate with women. There was a a potential for impurity, for gossip, even immorality. So they would keep their distance from women. They would not associate or speak with women. The second thing that we notice is that she is, on top of that, a Samaritan woman. Not just any woman, but a Samaritan woman to boot, which caused even further distance to take place. If if there's anybody that's going to be avoided, it's not only a woman, but even a Samaritan woman. There's two strikes right there. What's the third strike? The hint we get is that she came to the well at noon, high noon the peak heat of the day. Normally, women did not, did not go to wells alone. They would go together, and they would either go early in the morning or late in the evening or afternoon where the heat of the sun wasn't beating down on them. So there was almost a sense that this woman went at high noon to avoid any other individuals. Why? It will discover soon that it's because of her shady past, her sketchy past. So... Here is a woman who wants to be alone because she is, to some degree, being ostracized. She is a Samaritan woman to boot, and yet Jesus engages with her, connects with her. And we're going to find in the, in the discourse that takes place that there is this conversation that's taking place between the Samaritan woman and Jesus and as has occurred so many times with Jesus, he is misunderstood. Time and time again, we discover that when Jesus says something, people do not understand what he is saying. And why is that? Because whatever he is talking about, he takes earthly realities and infuses them with heavenly meaning. I'll say that again. He takes earthly realities... And he infuses them with heavenly meaning. Why is that? Because he is all about bringing heaven on earth. Remember, with the fall, there was a separation of heaven and earth. So as beautiful and wondrous and uh, harmonious as our creation that we see around us is, it is incomplete because God's original design, original intent was that heaven and earth would be married together. And Jesus was all about bringing heaven and earth together again. Remember when he would um, be uh, partying and enjoying eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees would thumb their noses at him. Why are you associating with tax collectors and sinners? And remember in Luke 15, three times he responds with the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son. And what is he saying in those prodigal, with those parables? Jesus is saying, what is taking place in heaven ought to be taking place on earth. In the, prodigal, in the parable of the lost sheep, doesn't he say, which one of you, if he has a hundred sheep, and one strays away, away, does not leave the 99 behind to go pursue the one, And when he finds it, puts it around his neck and goes home, calls up his neighbors and says, come rejoice with me because I had lost my one sheep and now I found it. And he says, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than on the earth through 99 who need no repentance. And what is he saying there? I'm sinking heaven and earth. I'm reconnecting heaven and earth. What is taking place in heaven ought to be taking place on earth. The widow was going by the donation bucket and drops two mites. And what does Jesus do? Stop the presses, everybody. 
I want you to behold something right over here. This is a kingdom event. The world passes her by, not noticing what's taking place, and Jesus lights it right up. He says, this is a kingdom event because she gave everything of what she had. So Jesus is all about bringing heaven and earth back together. And let's look at see how he does this in the conversation that he engages with this Samaritan woman. Picking it up again in verse 10. Jesus answered her because she said, why are you, why, why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, so he makes two points, Jesus. Number one, the nature of the gift. And number two, his identity. If you knew the gift of God, number one, and who it is that's talking to you, who I am, you would have asked me and, you would, and he would have given you living water. So t- with regards to those two questions, look at how the woman responds. In, res- in regards to the first one, she says, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? And again, you see, she's understanding the statements of Jesus on an earthly level. And with regards to the second one, his identity, he says, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? So what can you get this water from? You don't have anything to draw from. And are you greater than Jacob? It's interesting that in addition to the misunderstanding that she has about the spiritual nature of Jesus's statements, there's also a bit of twisted irony in this, isn't it? Because what he's offering has nothing to do with physical water. And his identity, in fact, he is far greater than Jacob, right? But let's see how Jesus continues to respond to this. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So it's interesting that he holds off on his identity question. He parks that on the side and says, okay, let's deal with this living water. Let's unpack this a bit. And he, he addresses the nature of this water. Now, what is this water? When you Consider living water, very frequently what you come to understand or what was understood at the time was running water. Running water from a a brook or a stream or a river, which is fresh and pure and clean as opposed to still and stagnant and stale water. That's what usually was understood when you're talking about living water. It It was running water. But he's talking about another kind of water altogether. Have we heard this kind of living water addressed before? Let's look at a few passages from the Old Testament and in the New that that kind of like shed some light on what Jesus is talking about. In Jeremiah 2.13, it says, God says, For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the foundation of living water, and they've dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. So here Jesus, or God is, is equating himself as the fountain of living water. Let's read on in Psalm chapter 42, the first two verses. What does it say? As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? So there's something in our wiring, there's something in our DNA that has as a thirst quencher, God himself. That's what he is alluding to here. We were made to thirst for God because in thirsting for God, we discover life, the life of God. Jesus himself, further on in chapter seven of John says this, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. What is he implying here? He's talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit who will indwell each individual who asks for this water from God, from Jesus. If you believe in me, he says, rivers of living water will flow from within you. And you will come to this life, the life of the new age, the life that this living water offers. And how does this story end to really unpack this and really powerfully drive the point home? In Revelation 21, what does it say, verses 5 to 7? God says, And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Also, he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the fountain of the water of life without payment. He who conquers shall have this heritage, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. So he's talking here about this living water that infuses us and causes us to experience eternal life and an intimate relationship with the living God. How does the woman respond to all these things that Jesus is saying? The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. And have to keep coming here to draw water. So again, she takes it at an earthly level. At a physical level. Again, she doesn't completely understand what Jesus is offering her. The nature of the gift that he is offering her. And I find that this statement of Jesus and this response of the woman taking it on an earthly level, really speaks to our day and age today. What it, why is that? If we think of the prevailing message of our culture, the prevailing view of culture, what message do we hear from culture? Those of you who have your phones, when you're scrolling through your social media apps, what do you hear? What is the overarching, overwhelming message that you get from your phones. In fact, let's, let's do a, a quick exercise. What are the top two most popular social media apps amongst teenagers today? Phone apps. Yeah, the top two. Number one is? If I hear it, I'll, I'll repeat it. TikTok, number one. Number two? I haven't heard it yet. No, not yet. YouTube. YouTube. Who has been on either of those two today? Show of hands. Who is on either of those two now? <laughs> As if you would raise your hand right now, right? But the fact of the matter is, you go to YouTube, Snapchat, uh, Instagram, TikTok, what is the overwhelming message that we hear from our culture? This world that you see around us is all that there is. This is the only world there is. There is nothing else. This is ultimate reality. So if you're pursuing life, you're chasing after life, you can only find it here. And along comes Jesus, and he's all about bringing heaven on earth. Ultimately, Heaven and earth ought to be together. In fact, to quote C.S. Lewis, one of his great, great quotes that I thoroughly enjoy, he says, If I find in myself desires for which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And that other world is the new heavens and the new earth. The ultimate reality of heaven and earth together. So in a nutshell, when we come across and we see that the only reality is this world, 
this physical earth, earthly world, what does the gospel in a nutshell do? The gospel, when it penetrates the hearts of a person, it's almost like the pads of a defibrillator that send this incredible shockwave into our souls, into our hearts, into our brains, and awakens us to that reality that there is more to life than meets the eye. That there is coming a day where heaven and earth shall be fused together as they originally were before the fall. And life, life of the new age, life in the full will be experienced at that time. Let's carry on. So she says, give me this water, Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. So in this conversation, what is the woman realizing? Yes, it's desirable to have this water, to, have, to, ne to never thirst again, so yes, she desires it. She wants it. She wants to receive it. But what is Jesus telling her? If you want to have this fresh, pure, clean, living water bubbling inside of you, then you're going to realize that the stale, moldy, stagnant water just won't do. And what is he bringing to light before this woman? That this nature of the gift that she's about to receive impacts every aspect of her life. Everything about her. And as he communicates this to her, she realizes what? That whatever we pursue in this life will just not satisfy. We will be thirsty again. But the gift that he offers is a thirst quencher forever. What is it that we chase after? What is it that we pursue in life to quench our thirst for life? Now, I'm not talking only about the destructive habits, the addictions, the vices that are very self-evident that they might give us a temporary fleeting pleasure like substance abuse, like alcohol, like so many other destructive uh, um, abuses and vices and addictions. But I'm talking about even the good things that we pursue, good things where we invest in them ultimate reality and cause them to be elevated to the supreme status of this is what life is all about. What is the things that you chase after? What are the things that I chase after? Well, for me, my reality, and very often I've shared this in the past, being a dentist, I swim in circles of well-to-do individuals. And the overwhelming definition of success is characterized by what car you drive, what neighborhood you live in, if you have a second cottage up north, what clothes you wear. This is success in the eyes of my industry. And I continuously battle that because I like to think that I am a successful dentist, but the way I receive my signals as to what counts as true success is not necessarily the signals that my industry reinforces. So I drive around in my 2008 Toyota Yaris because it just hums along merrily, problem-free, and saves gas. But the world looks at me and says, hmm, I wonder how good of a dentist he must be. And I struggle with that. I struggle that I am not all there is. I'm not experiencing life to the full. And I buy in to the message of the culture. What is the message of the culture that you are buying into? That Jesus says, no, that's not going to satisfy. You're going to get thirsty again and again and again. I offer you this water living water, and you will never, ever be thirsty again. 
For the women, what was it? She was pursuing love. She wanted to love and to be loved. And she had five kicks at the can. And she was currently on her sixth. And Jesus is telling her indirectly, you're looking for life in the wrong places. If you knew who it was that is offering you this gift, you would receive it without batting an eye. So how does she respond? It's interesting, whenever you, you just broach a sensitive issue with an individual, invariably, they seek to change the subject, right? And for this woman, when it comes to an issue of morality, what is, and for all of us, I think, what is the favorite topic to engage in when we touch issues of morality? Religion. Listen to what she says. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you just Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So it's, it's, a, it's a thing about, well, you know, we don't know where should we worship, Mount Zion or Mount Gerizim, which was where the Samaritans were. So we can't, about issues of morality, we must be uncertain as to what is right and wrong. Jesus. How does Jesus respond to this question? Listen to what he says. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. From Abraham on downwards through that lineage, through that storyline of the nation of Israel, God's ultimate purposes for his creation and for the human race is revealed in the lineage of the Jewish nation, culminating in her Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. Yet a time is coming, verse 23, and now and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. What is Jesus saying here? Again, he is taking earthly realities and infusing them with heavenly meaning. And what is he saying here? He's saying that we would have to go to a particular temple, a geographical location, to encounter where the presence of God, where heaven and earth met, so that we can worship there. There is coming a day, says Jesus, where this living water is going to indwell you, and you will be heaven on earth people. You will not have to go to a specific geographical location to meet with God because God will be present with you. The living water will indwell you, will be bubbling inside of you. So it will no longer be about location. To which the woman responds, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. This is above my pay grade, Jesus. I'm not getting what you're saying. One day the Messiah will come. He'll explain everything to us. And now the clincher, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So he dealt with the nature of the gift issue question first, and now he deals with his identity question with her. But it's almost like he had to bring her along to come to this point, not only to realize how much he knew about her, but also that she would understand that in order to receive this gift that he is offering to her, it will impact every aspect of her life. We turn the corner here in the last part of this passage. It says, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Again, scandalous. Why would he be doing this? But no one asked to the woman, what do you want? Or to Jesus, why are you talking with her? And then, let's park that discussion with the disciples for a sec. He says, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and sent to the people. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. I find it interesting. She came at high noon so other people wouldn't see her because she was thirsty. So she brings her water jar to get water. And right here we see in verse 28, 
she left her water jar behind. Why? Why did he leave her water jar? Wasn't she thirsty? She was so impacted by this living water that Jesus offered her, she completely forgot about her physical thirst. And she ran back to town because this supplanted any desire, any thirst she might have had at the physical level. And what is this lesson that Jesus is telling us here? He doesn't stand with folded arms and say, clean up your act, get rid of those five husbands and that sixth one, stop those addictions and those vices that you're pursuing, and when I see some improvement, I'll offer you some living water. No. He says, taste it. And when you do, things just drop by the wayside because you've experienced ultimate reality, ultimate fulfillment, ultimate life. Back to the disciples. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Totally over the heads, right? Again, Jesus bringing heavenly meaning to earthly realities. He's saying, and how does he respond? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I might be hungry, but this is where I get my nourishment. And this is a lesson for all of us. Engaging in the work of God, in the mission of God, is invigorating. It replenishes us. It fills us with energy. It doesn't sap our energy. That's what he's saying here. Don't you have a saying, he says, verse 35, it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And Jesus repeats this message down through the centuries to our present day. The reaping and the sowing are almost going hand in hand. It is such an opportune time. The world, the human race, our neighbors, our community is parched from thirst, looking for sources of living water. The opportunity is before us. Jesus is saying. And then finally, the last four verses. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We're no we no longer believe just because of what you said, your testimony. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. And Jesus invites us again and again to discover that for ourselves. I'm going to read an excerpt. I'm going to close now by reading from an excerpt. I was listening to this podcast from Missio Alliance called Red Skies. And it's based on a book by the same name, Red Skies, 10 Essential Conversations about our future as the church. And I'm going to read something that really impacted me concerning church and disciple-making, what we are called to be involved in, engaged in, making disciples. Listen to what he says. When Jesus called disciples to follow him in his earthly ministry, he didn't look for people whose outward lives fit within a certain standard of behavior. Instead, Jesus was interested in disciples who were willing to follow him, however imperfectly, and whose hearts were oriented toward him. He was focused not on their behavioral location, but rather on the direction of their movement. So how are we to understand location or direction within discipleship? 
In the book Untamed, Reactivating a Missional Form of Discipleship, Deborah and Alan Hirsch explain the bounded and centered communities as they apply to the church. Now listen to this. This is fascinating. A bounded community, as applied to the church, has a clear boundary wall around who is in and who is out. It has clearly delineated boundaries, but no strong theological center. Inclusion and belonging are based on how aligned your beliefs and behaviors are with those already on the inside. Ongoing resistance to their belief or behavior over time usually leads to some form of rejection. A bounded church sees conformity to beliefs and behaviors as essential and doesn't tend to leave much room for diversity of opinion or behavior. So bounded communities are hard at the edges, that is by setting walls, determining who is in and who is out, and soft at the center. The centered community, on the other hand, is characterized by clear theology and vision at its center, with no firm boundaries that people have to cross in order to join. Centered communities are therefore hard at the center and soft at the edges. The centered model assumes that every person is somewhere in relation to Jesus. Every person is somewhere. No matter how far away people might be from Jesus, they only need to turn toward him, and he is right there because God is not far from any of us. Others who appear close might actually be moving away from God. Direction is therefore key. People are seen as moving along a continuum toward or away from Jesus, the center. The primary aim is to orient others toward the center so that they have an authentic encounter and understanding of God in Jesus Christ. A metaphor that he uses to describe this, to describe this is from the Australian outback. Now listen to this. In Australia, ranches are so vast that fences are simply not a viable way of keeping the animals together. Under these conditions, a farmer has to sink a bore and create a well, a precious water supply in the outback. It is assumed that livestock though they will stray, will never roam too far from the well, lest they die. As long as there is a supply of clean water, the livestock will remain close by. What if we were to be known as a church that is all about digging wells and not about building fences? What if we were consumed by having the hard center of Jesus in our midst and inviting others, offering this gift of living water for them to taste and leaving the results up to God. Not building fences to say, you're in, you're out. That's God's business. But here is Jesus. Let me introduce him to you. Come and taste and see for yourselves. Would that not impact our lives, our community, our world? I leave us with that thought. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, you offer the gift of living water freely for anyone who chooses to partake. And Lord, as we taste of this water, we discover that we never, ever grow thirsty again. This life that you offer us transcends the grave. 
will be moved to the new heavens and the new earth for a time when we shall rejoice with you and with one another at how wonderful you are, at how loving and gracious and giving you are with this wonderful gift, the living water that you offer us all. Father, do your work in our hearts, in our relationships, in our midst, in our church, that we would be a beacon of light shining forth for the glory of your son Jesus and for the blessing of the nations. For it is in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen and amen. That is a, thank you for that. That's a good word. God himself, how did you say it? God himself is the thirst, the thirst quencher. Um, who has a, a, a question? Uh, who has thoughts? Right in the middle, is that Gary? Yep. it's so much um, a question or as an observation but it's um, on John John 4 15 and 16 which you read to us uh, it says that uh, to receive the living water well actually no that's my statement to receive the living water the woman was to go into town and tell everyone Jesus said that uh, is well, I look at it as indicative of what you're saying is we're to give that or speak of this living water to others. Um, I'm not saying that was, I guess the question was, was it an obligation to her receiving it? I think I know the answer would be not necessarily, but it was just the order in which the events happen. The nature of this gift is... Uh, contagious by its quality. In other words, when you receive and experience this reality, it, it, it's, it's bubbling water. You can't contain it. The cork is going to fly off because you will want to share what you've experienced. It is just so good. It's otherworldly. It's out of this world, this reality. And once you experience this, this living water coursing through your body, you want to share it with others. That's the nature of this water. So it's not a duty, uh, earning points or whatnot. It's just the, the, the quality of this gift. Yeah, I'm going to miss something. I don't think he actually tells her to go and tell people. No. I think she just drops her bucket and goes. Yeah. yeah. Anyone else? Oh, we got a couple right over here. Really appreciated it. Such great thoughts. Uh, wondering about the what feels like the in-between time. So, <laughs> to go back to your uh, to your Teodieris, uh, great analogy. I would guess that there are moments when you're driving your Toyota Yaris and you're, you're interacting with, uh, with colleagues in the dental community where that's a faith commitment that you've made, where, where you may not feel that sense of love my Toyota Yaris, uh, feel really good about this decision. To so, so how do you, what does it look like? I think we all know the mountaintop experiences where we're like, I'm tasting the living water and it's amazing and it's worth sacrificing for. But a lot of our life is in the in-between of, you know, taking that by faith. So I'm just curious what's that, what that's looked like for you to, to walk by faith in, in, in pursuing living water and what that kind of looks like a bit more on the, on the day by day. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, for me, it's... A, it's, it's um, it's a, it's, it is a sense of calling. It is a vocation for me. It's not something I do uh, at the rest of the week. So I don't compartmentalize my faith. It, it, 
my faith is infused in everything that I am and I do, or at least uh, I try to allow that to happen. And it's the affirmation in the relationships that I have with, with my peers, with my staff, with my patients especially, um, the appreciation and, and, and the giving the glory to God that he is the one that has given me this gift to be a dentist and to seek to excel at it and to, to bless others through it. Um, that's, for me, those are the, uh, the, the nuggets of gold. And I, I find, um, I, think, I think it was John MacArthur early on in my, uh, in, my, uh, in my faith walk when I heard this that really impacted me. It says, you know, you, the pursuits of the world is like you come to a countertop and it has all these various objects on them uh, with different price tags on them. And along comes Jesus with the gifts that he offers you, eternal life, um, forgiveness, uh, everything that he offers you. And he puts them on the table. And when you come to faith, you discover that he switches the price tags. So the ones that are super, super expensive in the world's eyes become insignificant. And what is truly, truly of precious worth and value are the things that, that, that God puts on the table for you to, uh, to appreciate and enjoy. I think there was another question right over here also. Actually, it's not a question. I'm a witness for Dr. Distunis. I worked two years with him, and I learned a lot from him. And he brought me and my family to this church. And it's true, you don't drive like a Mercedes, you don't live in a mansion, but you work for glory of God, and I'm a very, I'm a very witness for that. The love for his job and passion, and plus he's an amazing dentist. I, I highly recommend him. <laughs> Thank you, it's a pleasure for me. Is that Adel back there? Okay. Oh, and there's one over here too. Yeah, Bill, I think. I can't see. I, I'm just so thankful right now. Uh, I confess before you all that I have been forsaking the assembly of myself as a believer. He told me, I'm 86 now, and he told me when I was 40, I had turned 40, <laughs> Ralph, talking to myself now, if you allow me, please. Don't meander, get to the point. I was told I was a sinner. Ralph, you're a sinner. You need to accept Jesus Christ as your savior. Almighty God intervened and saved my soul. And when Ralph, that's me, of course, without being egotistical, and you're smiling, my dear. Oh, thank you so much. And I want to share this, that the man who has shared from our Father's holy word is the man who takes care of my teeth for me. Dr. Evangelist Destunus. And I want to thank him publicly for his tremendous blessing towards me the last time I saw him. So as I have said to a few friends recently, I'll say it again, Ralph, stop. And may Ralph reach the maturity. And I believe, Pastor, you know where I'm at. I believe, oh, please, Father, 
let him know that he may continue to bless me, Lord. Uh, and now, in the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, I pray. Amen. And I thank my friend here beside me, who lives here in the West Island. He came to LaSalle, and he brought me here this morning. And I am just so thankful. Hallelujah. I'll end with hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Thanks for sharing that, Ralph. Uh, um, we got a bunch of text messages today, and I just want to remind you, if you don't know, uh, every week we record a podcast where we try to address some of the questions that we don't have time to uh, address on Sundays, so just look for that on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll be able to find it, Westview Q&A. Uh, there's one more question, I think, back here that I want to... I think someone had their, Adel over here had her hand up. And I'm sorry, if there's a, anyone else has something else, text us. And we'll, again, we'll try to answer that this week. When you have a good message, lots of thoughts come to mind. So we're getting kind of a lot today. Hi, thank you. Um, I have a question about the bonded, bounded community versus centered community. And so when I think about what you said about the bounded community, I, I, I think about the concern and the fears that I've heard in Christian circles about the dilution of the message of Jesus as we go into these communities that are outside church. And so the people I've, I know, some people I know, have then built up the fences to protect the purity of the message. So what's your comment about that? I just, I just look at Jesus and his faith community, and here was one who had a hard center. He was at the center of his faith community, and there were all sorts of different people that were surrounding him to various degrees, and he made himself available to, to one and all. Uh, he was, he, yeah, it was messy and uh, unpredictable and perhaps dangerous, but... Uh, I would take my cues from, from my Lord and say, if you're calling us to go into the dark places to be that light, so be it. Um, he is not far from us. He indwells us. And as we allow his light to shine through us, it will, it will have its healing power on those uh, dangerous and shady uh, and dark places. The big thing is that the center is hard, that we pursue nothing but a real, authentic encounter with the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, one little thing on that, like, there's something beautiful about this story where this woman is asking for living water, and Jesus with total love, subtly calls her to repent, doesn't he? In the sense of, like, you're trying to drink from something that's not going to satisfy you. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say to her, don't talk to me until you get this figured out, you know? Um, what I'm trying to say is, we don't need to dilute the message. Like, we can still preach the word and we can share what's true, without putting a fence up, right? You know, we can share God's heart. We can exposit God's word. We can talk about things like evangelist. Sometimes the culture doesn't want to hear, okay? But we don't have to take a posture or a stance that says, um, until you reach a certain level, you're not welcome here. You know, because I think it's totally true. We're all on different, we're all, how did you say it? We're all uh, on a... On a continuum, aren't we? We're all in different places when it comes to the Lord. And so uh, I think that's, that's just like a, a, I think that's just like a beautiful thing that Jesus was, he was, he was full of truth. And, and sometimes he would call a, a woman to, to repent, but he was, he was also full of love and invitation. And my, oh my, that would be awesome uh, for us to be, right? Well, Avanj, thank you. 
truly, truly a blessed message. And really, I love just the way you're willing to just share your heart and your own struggles. And sometimes you wish you didn't have a 2008 car, but I think it's just such a cool thing. Like right here, we have someone who, you know, uh, was one of your employees and can, can testify that, you know, she saw a success in you that, that transcended uh, the car that you drove. And um, I think that's just such an awesome vision for success. Uh, Lord God, let us have such a high vision for what it means uh, to, to live and to truly drink, Lord. Um, let us pursue you above, uh, above the things that, that, that the world chases after, Lord. Let us enjoy some of those things that are good, but let us seek you more. God, be the thirst quencher for us, Lord. Uh, we thank you in your name, Jesus. Amen.